Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all and uh, equipping especially for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm Discipleship Pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Ken Shank. Any regular listeners of the show uh, know Ken well. He's been on many times. So excited to have him back on for our first New Testament passage after a long stretch in the Psalms. He uh, is a New Testament scholar, although he knows so much more. He's a he's very eclectic, uh, but his expertise is in New Testament studies. So it's really great to have him back on this week. Uh, if you just search his name on Amazon, you'll find about a dozen different books that he's put out. So you can check out some of the stuff that he's written. Um, he has a great book on on Jesus' uh, life, and then uh, that's a sort of more uh, accessible book. And then he's got all kinds of scholarly stuff and everything in between. Uh, so he's uh, he's really great. So definitely check out his writings on Amazon. Our text this week is Matthew chapter eleven, verses two through eleven. Matthew eleven two through eleven, the gospel reading for the third Sunday of Advent. As you're listening to the show today, if you find yourself enjoying it, just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice, and that way you can pass this on to others so they might find out as well and find themselves enjoying it too. That's the best way to get the word out about the show is is through word of mouth, so we'd appreciate you doing that. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to find ways to support us. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken. Right. Would you be willing to read the passage, 11, 2 through 11? Certainly. And I have, uh, for whatever reason, the RSV up, so I hope that's okay. Great. So, Matthew eleven two through 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in king's houses. Why then did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks this very day for... Uh, sending forth your son, Jesus, into the world and sending uh, his forerunner, uh, the one who prepared his way, John the Baptist. And so in this Advent season, as we recall the first coming of your son, Jesus, as well as await his final coming in this time between the times that we have, uh, open our eyes and our hearts to uh, what these words of Christ have for us about John, about himself, and about us in our world. 
We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So what do you notice here? What, what jumps out to you as you read this passage afresh today? It is, uh, well, one of the things that jumped out to me is, of course, is, you know, in Luke, in Luke, uh, John the Baptist knows Jesus, uh, or at least should know Jesus. He's his cousin. It sure doesn't seem like he is entirely clear on who Jesus is here. That was just the first thing that jumped out at, at me. The similarity to Luke uh, jumps out at me uh, in terms of the framing of what is the proof that Jesus is the one. But um, I, I don't want to go to, I don't know if you want to go back and do them one at a time or, but the, um, the second thing that jumps out at me is the way that, that uh, Jesus, he doesn't come right out and answer John as to whether he's the one, but he describes what he's been doing, which is also what Luke does uh, in this particular passage. But anyway, those are a couple of things that jump into, out to me first. Yeah. So let's leave Luke aside just for now. Maybe in the second segment, we can talk a little more about similarities and differences in these passages there. But nevertheless, yeah, it is weird. The, the picture that we get, of course, one, the moment you throw that's why I want to bracket it out. The moment you throw the Gospel of John in there, it gets even more complicated. But even if you only took Matthew, you do have I'm, – I'm trying to remember that scene and the unique things in that scene when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And he says, oh, I should be baptized. You know, you should baptize me. And he says, yeah. oh, we do this to fulfill all righteousness. And possibly in contrast with Mark, because the voice, the voice in Mark just says, you are my son, so, which right. leaves it ambiguous whether this is – Sort of a other people are hearing how how much did others see? Although we know from <laughs> we know from the book of Acts that the same author can actually narrate a story and have <laughs> witnesses. Re, when I'm sure. thinking of Saul's conversion, how many different yeah. ways that same story is told, even by one author. But anyway, at least in Matthew, it's this is my son, implying that it's addressing at least John, if not the crowds. Right. So John, even in Matthew. Again, you're right. Luke, you've got way more information because of the relative Zechariah thing. In John, you've got all the, you know, this kind of Christian language on in John the Baptist's mouth. But even if you take those out, even in Matthew, he has enough information for this to seem like a shift, a little bit of a, a narrative ugh, like, oh, whoa, okay. John, you know, seemed to be kind of around for a key moment. And yet even he is kind of like, well, is this going to work out? <laughs> Did I back the wrong horse? You know, I've, I've heard some people explain it as it's not so much for John, it's for his followers, that he wants his followers to, uh, to hear it for themselves, which is, you know, a sign of a good teacher. I'm a bad teacher. I want to tell the answer. Sometimes I, you know, I'm, I'm with somebody else and the question's being asked to somebody else and ooh, 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 I know, I, I, I know that. Well, you, you don't even belong here. You know, this isn't for you. But um, the fact that, that John is sending his followers to Jesus, you know, is, is, that's the easy excuse, right? That it's to help them know who Jesus is. Yeah, no, I, and that one's, I mean, that's been around since the early church fathers. That's been a common, because, you know, St. John is this saint and this great witness and the harmonizing of the gospels. But again, even without the harmonizing, it is a problem. And of course, you taught me years ago to not rush to iron out problems. Sometimes the problems is where the, is where the juice is, you know, like to really, and I, I think it, that kind of a move, though, not impossible, sure. does seem to it takes all the tension out of the story, you know, <laughs> that, that's my, my feeling is that 
to see John the Baptist and the fact that this is this is when it's worth mentioning not the specifics of the version in Luke, but just the fact that it appears in Luke is a kind of corroboration. You know, that this is likely a very ancient story. It was handed down that John it, – it's fascinating that it, what was handed down in the early church, even prior to the composition of the Gospels, that what was handed down in the church is at least three things about John the Baptist more, but if you bring in all the John – Gospel John material, but at least these three things in the synoptic traditions that he baptized Jesus after having been a preacher, one, two, this story, some moment of questioning or inquiry, in, let's say inquiry, right? So he could be approaching it neutral. It doesn't mean he's racked with doubt in the jail. I don't know. And third, the story of his death, right? So you have like these, apparently the three things for sure we know about John the Baptist is that he baptized Jesus. He asked him this question. So I wonder, okay, let, let's, can we play with the teacher idea for a second? If Jesus was in some sense, a disciple of John the Baptist for a season, however long, even if it's just coming and being baptized, but if they had any kind of, there was a sense in which, you know, the famous uh, riddle from John of he who comes after me is before me because he's above me, right? You only have to say that riddle because it, it's kind of strange that, that, that Jesus, the, this divine figure happened to have sat at the feet of someone else, right? So he is a disciple of John in some sense. So there's a part of me that wants to think it's maybe less just about the two disciples he sends and more about Jesus. He's pressing Jesus like, Hey, if you're really the one, it's time to tell us plainly. And that is a theme that shows up. That doesn't get John off the hook. It almost makes him worse. It puts him on the side of the Pharisees and others who are always pressing Jesus for a sign, for a, cl a clear explication, articulation of his identity, which links to your second observation of the, of the kind of coy way, indirect way that Jesus answers. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes I ask questions that I know the answer to. You know, maybe there's some, I don't know what it is psychologically that, you know, leads us to do that. Just to liven things up, I, I just flashed through my mind the scene in the Avengers where uh, Captain America picks up Thor's hammer and Thor says, I knew it. You know, <laughs> I knew you were worthy. You were just pretending you weren't to make me feel good, you know, kind of. Uh, so, I mean, just because John asks, he could have a little bit of, of uncertainty amid a lot of certainty. I mean, anyway, just to liven things up, uh, uh, an Avengers uh, reference always helps. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, and the, I knew it. It's both. I knew it. But also the exuberance of saying it means, okay, now all doubt that was there is now been removed, right? And of course, the anguish and agony of John the Baptist is he doesn't get to see the way it plays out. Although he may not have been, I don't know how well he would have said, I knew it, because John the Baptist may not have had the same concept of Messiah that Jesus has. <laughs> Clearly, the disciples didn't. Jesus' own <laughs> disciples didn't. So it could be that even John the Baptist is saying, yeah, I know you're the one to come, but what? let's get on with it. You're, you're just roaming the roaming the Galilean countryside, preaching and healing people. Great. But we got like fundamental oppression and justice down here in Judea. Break me out of prison. You know, <laughs> depose Herod, right? I, I, I'm not, I don't want to push John sure. Baptist in too much of a zealot direction, but, but there may have been some daylight between Jesus and John on what it means to be Messiah. And I, I'm sure that John, I mean, he's got to be, okay, now that I'm in prison, who's taking up the torch? You know, somebody's got to be out there preaching the kingdom of God. I'm in here, you know, this doesn't look good. So, I mean, he's, he's probably under all that, that pressure of the movement even perhaps. 
There's a subtle version of the first, the kind of classical answer. I kind of almost want to come to a second naivete that says that first naive answer that sort of airbrushes the problem. You set it aside so that you feel the burn of the, of the problem, the narrative tension here. In the end, the result can be the same that John actually hopes that if the answer is really yes, which is what he hopes, like Thor, his hope is that yes, he's the one, he's the worthy, right? But that if that's the case, he would want his followers who no longer have him to follow to join. I mean, that, that, that's a very pregnant moment that both versions, Matthew and Luke have that Jesus gives an answer, an indirect answer to John's question. And then the two messengers leave. And it's as they're leaving, Jesus turns to the crowd and starts talking about John the Baptist. And it's actually what he says about, and maybe we'll come back to this in the second segment here in a moment, but it's what he says about John the Baptist that actually reveals more deeply who Jesus is, right? (laughs) And so you almost were like, oh, I wish they would have stayed. You know, whatever John's plan for these two guys were, there's a missed opportunity here, you know? I mean, it does parallel John, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. It does parallel John where where John the Baptist basically tells his followers, you need to follow him now. Mm-hmm. There's a r- interesting parallel there. I always accent the tensions between John and the synoptics as, as you do too, but with an awareness that if you let those tensions breathe, you then understand the text better. And then as you understand the text better, you realize actually they're kind of getting it similar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there often are deep resonances. You can see that these are all emerging out of the same traditions and stories, you know, because it is the same gist. It is, this is a, a he must increase, I must decrease moment, whatever's in John's head psychologically, which in a way is not accessible to us. The, the text is heading in that direction. And it's fun to see that there's these, these disciples. And I keep saying too, Luke says there's two. Matthew just says sent word by his disciples. So I apologize for that to clarify, but. I knew one did and one didn't. I assumed it was Matthew that had two because he always has two, you know. Uh, it's a kind of Matthew thing, but. I do just, you know, before we move on from the historical, I yeah. do think that hindsight, you know, that when we read the Gospels, we assume it was all obvious to everybody. And uh reminds me of a story my my sister was uh, teaching some middle schoolers, I think, and talking about how the, the Revolutionary War and how the, you know, Eng- England was taxing us and all that. And some student blurted out, they can't do that. You know, we're America, you know, and with no historical awareness of how, well, it hasn't always been the way it is now, you know. And these weren't invaders from the outside. This was the legitimate government that they were under. Right? We weren't even a world power till after World War One. You, you know, those sorts of those sorts of things. In the same way, the Gospels have made things very easy for us. Whereas, you know, I, I always said this when I was teaching too, you know, if we could beam if we could beam into the situation, things that are obvious to us would not be nearly as clear as they are because we have scripture. You know, if we'd have beamed into Paul's arguments, it wouldn't have been immediately clear that Paul was the winner, you know, of those arguments in, in his own moment. And so I do think, like you like you've been saying, it's helpful to realize that the relationship between Jesus and John is seems obvious to us, you know, looking in with two thousand years of hindsight, you know, but but these things were probably less clear. I, w- I would argue to them, but anyway. Yeah. And even clearer by 2000 years, sure. But even just a couple decades later, by the time these gospels are written down, yeah, the clarity uh, is greater. Although you have a lot more traces of the, the unknown, the confusion seeps through the story. This, this whole story doesn't even get off the ground. If 
You know what I mean? It, like if the whole point of this story is, boy, John's a dummy or John's so brilliant. He sent those two guys and they're idiots and left. You know, I mean, like it's not ever that simple, especially because surely even among the 12, there were some who were like, sure. yeah, good point, John. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> we hope. Well, and when it happens, yeah, what do they all say? You know, of course, in, during the 40 days after resurrection, it's all, I knew it, right? Of course, that's where they are. But, <laughs> but really, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at Matthew 11. Verses 2 through 11, Matthew 11, 2 through 11. So yeah, let's let's take a look at Jesus' answer. We've already said that he kind of gives an indirect answer. So I'll just read that part, and then maybe you can say a little bit what you think Jesus is hinting at uh, with this. So Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. And this is identical in Matthew and Luke. Uh, this quote only appears in Matthew and Luke. Luke adjusts the narrative a little bit. He has them doing some of those things like right then, like, here, let me show you, and does a little illustration. Matthew just runs straight to the teaching. But the teaching is identical except for one just a change on the uh, the tense on the heard and seen. It's it's here and see present in Matthew and Luke. It's it's past tense have seen and heard, but other than that, it's identical. So what's going on there? What th- this seems like a non-answer since yeah, it sure. says even literally the opening that John heard all that he was doing. Right? Doesn't it say that? And in- he he heard about the deeds of the Christ. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, pretty straight, right? So very interesting that. Again, this is a slightly different question, uh, but if if someone were to say, "Was Jesus the Messiah?" and I said, "Well, let me tell you what he did. He made people who were lame walk, gave blind people sight, raised up the dead, preached good news to the poor." I think a lot of people would say, "You didn't answer my question. Is he the, is he the Messiah?" What and and maybe even what does that have to do with anything? And um, I do think when you think about what the messianic expectations of of Jews were, some Jews might have responded, so he's not then. You're telling me he's not. You're not telling me anything about fighting the Romans. You're not telling me anything about liberating Israel. So you're telling me he's not, right? (laughs) It's a frustrating answer to the the person with the first century Jewish worldview, I think. Now, you know, I'm just a dabble in Luke again. Luke helps us considerably, I think, by uh, it's the inaugural address in Luke four, where similar, you know, Jesus Jesus gets up in the in his own synagogue in Nazareth. He reads Psalm uh, Isaiah sixty one, Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind. And I think that passage may be hiding in the background of this answer, but Matthew doesn't mention uh, the prophet Isaiah. Luke makes it very clear, I think, by as it were, framing Jesus' earthly ministry with with the passage like this. And there is an additional quote from Isaiah. I mean, there's some material from Isaiah, you know, this could be almost a quote, right? I mean, it's almost straight, yeah. you know, it's, it would be what's called an allusion, right? It's alluding to it, but he doesn't say as the, as the prophet says, 
Although he does do that when he talks about John the Baptist, right? So again, he's playing with them a little bit. And I, I wonder if even, even the next verses seven through, well, verse seven mainly, that who is this John the Baptist even? You know, so again, I'm sorry, I watched too many movies. I was thinking about a, a Harry Potter quote from one of the final movies where they're talking to Harry Potter about Dumbledore, who is his mentor. And the woman says, really, did you even know the man? You know, you you claim to be you know close to him, and yet you don't know you don't know the square one about this guy. So it seems like Jesus is telling if if Jesus' answer is well, are you the Messiah or not? His says, well, is John what you expected? You know, why'd you go out to see him? Did you see him in king's clothing? You know, did you expect? You know, was he what you were expecting? You know, of the forerunner of the Christ. Anyway, maybe I'm misreading. Oh, or even of even of a Messiah type himself as we yeah. know it was wondered and and john's own and there's kind of some herod references here even the reed shaking in the wind i read in a commentary once that that herod actually had some coins that had reeds on them so this was one of his symbols i haven't seen the coins for myself but i take it that that's that's from legit commentaries that said that and obviously the kings in their fancy clothes is very you know the the king who currently has john the baptist in prison for him to kind of say well, yeah, you went out for a prophet, but more than a prophet, right? He's, and there's a suggestion here that, yeah, I see, I see. And, and then the passage, when it continues, makes that very clear. When, when he gets to the end, he says, you know, what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces calling their playmates. We piped and you didn't dance. We wailed, you didn't mourn. You know, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a glutton and drunkard, a friend and tax collector, to friend of tax collectors and sinners. Kind of like, you're not happy either way, whichever you're, you're surprised by John. You're now you're surprised by me, which is why the, the blessed is he who takes no offense at me is a signal. It's a little like a, he who has ears, let him hear, which he actually says in verse 15 with reference to the Elijah language, he's kind of doing a, well, if you don't get it, you don't get it. I can't, I can't force this down your throat. And so then the last line is so suggestive Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That same word, the works or the deeds that started the passage. In Luke, it's wisdom is justified by all her children. But I think yeah. it's the same point. And in Matthew, it's very clear. It's That's almost a clue to how to interpret this answer. You, you're going to know by what I do, not by what I tell you. I can tell you till I'm blue in the face who I am. And it's not going to do you any good. You know, you'll either accept it or reject it. By focusing on my works, it leaves the it leaves the question open, right? It leaves you if you're undecided. Well, you can keep watching what I do and see how it plays out. Although some some take that wording in comparison to Luke, you know, wisdom is justified by our children, wisdom is justified by our deeds. I mean, some take that as a implicit uh, well, wisdom Christology on Matthew's part. That Matthew has a subtext of of hinting that Jesus is the wisdom of God. You know, wisdom is just by, by our deeds. You know, that Jesus, the things that Jesus is doing is, the, is what what wisdom is, is doing, which would also fit um, that statement in, uh, is it also in this chapter? My yoke, take my yoke upon you. Yes. Um, which is. Wisdom language from the wisdom literature. Yeah. Probably an allusion to Sirach 51. So, yeah. So anyway. Yeah, that's a subtle difference where, and again, it fits because Luke gives this more, more significant role to John the Baptist. And they do emerge, I mean, even just the opening narratives in Luke kind of place these as two children, 
right? These two voices from the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the, Jesus is the more important one, but they're still kind of coming. They emerge together as a pair. Whereas Matthew, you're right. It's more about, you know, you saw John's deeds, but more importantly, you're seeing my deeds now. Look what I'm up to. It reminds me of, of Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 1, I think it is. We do speak wisdom uh, among the mature, but it's not a wisdom of this age. You know, a sense that, like you said, those who have ears to hear know that Jesus is looking an awful lot like the Messiah, and John is looking an awful lot like the forerunner. But not everybody sees that. Some people don't have uh, eyes to see, and they see Jesus doing all these things with the poor and and the lame, and it's like, hey, what are you doing, man? We've got bigger fish to fry here. You know, look at those Roman soldiers down in Jerusalem. We got to get at it. You know, you should you need to be collecting an army, not healing people. But which flows nicely in the third segment a little bit later. Maybe. I think it does. So I think I think we should actually make that a transition now. That I mean, just to say that even though this passage is not a passage talking about the way you'd have in some epistles or other places or in, in some discourses in John or even in Mark about, you know, the second coming versus the first coming and how there's a difference in their character, right. That correspond roughly to the cross and resurrection, right. That, that these two, uh, that that distinction is actually crucial for, for the story of Jesus to make any sense because there are certain prophecies he didn't fulfill, right? Because those are still yet to be fulfilled. So there's this this opening up between a first and a final coming. Again, this passage is not teaching that in any direct way at all. Uh, I, I wouldn't even say it's presupposing it. However, you can see why something along those lines almost has to come to be in the awareness and teaching of the early church because there's an element of oddity or surprise or strangeness in the way that Jesus comes. And there is something very adventy in him calling him, you know, are you the one to come? Right. In Latin, this would be the word advent, right? <laughs> Adventus, sure. right. The coming one. Yeah. So um, I think it does tail right into that. Even if it's not the, the surface meaning of the passage, the season in which we're reading it invites that those kinds of questions. So let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Ken Shank, and we're looking at Matthew 11, 2 through 11. Looked a little at the context. The full passage really runs to about verse 19, but up through 11, the passages in Matthew and Luke are pretty much identical. So that is actually an okay place to stop off. Then you get in some different variations and things. So yeah, the lectionary that, you know, we follow, I mean, in general on this show, we don't always care. Sometimes it's just a jumping off point. I think in this case, it's relevant because it's, it's the, this is for the third week of Advent and Advent. John the Baptist is one of the kind of central figures of Advent. And so this is a, this has been a long time week three Advent passage. Uh, the Luke version appears in year C, the Matthew version in year A. So, the, so we're very much in a kind of standard. There's a there's a choice here being made to say, okay, this is an Advent passage. So, what is Advent? Advent is these these weeks prior to Christmas when we kind of re-enter this movement of the coming of Jesus, the waiting uh, of Jesus, both his first coming and then his final coming. So, we're waiting for that final coming. The first coming's in our past, but we. We, we still enter into that. And so John is kind of this last figure, the finale prophet that's waiting 
right? And, and you see in John, as we already discussed, he, this is what waiting's like. There's, it's full of expectation. Of course, he hopes that he's the one, but there's also questions and inquiry and looking for signs, looking for clarity, looking for assurances. And Jesus' assurances come in the form of pointing out what he does, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let's explore some sermon starters. I mean, those are kind of like some themes. What would that look like? How would we preach or teach on a passage like this in a way that would draw people into it? Any thoughts? Well, I, uh, you know, we tend to preach the same sermon over and over again. And I feel like in, in the last uh, five years, I've probably preached variations on, on a similar sermon, sermon a number of times. And this passage cues it, cues my, the paths of my brain again. Um, Great. If you go, if you, if you go further, in the passage, like you said, the, the theme of them not getting Jesus, I think, you know, we piped and you didn't dance, you know, um, we wailed, you didn't mourn. They said, uh, John doesn't eat and drink, you know, he's, he's a demon. Well, Jesus eats and drinks. Well, he's a, he's an alcoholic, you know? So there's, I, and, and in the middle there, uh, men of, men of violence are trying to take the kingdom of heaven by force. Um, I think you've, you've, you've made it, pretty clear that part two Jesus in the second coming in the New Testament is a little bit more of that sort of a Jesus, maybe. He breaks a few eggs when he comes back. But uh, phase one Jesus is not that at all. And I suppose we can entirely blame them for expecting phase two Jesus in phase one. I mean, I don't think that was that would have been 100% clear to them, apart from new revelation, that part one Jesus was going to, that he was going to restore you know, he was going to take care of the insiders before he, you know, before he judged the outsiders, you know, so to speak. And then that time between mentioning Paul earlier ends up being the the opportunity for the so-called outsiders to become insiders. Right? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> that's absolutely. what the, that's at least, at least in Paul's view, that's the point of the, there being two phases, right? right. Is the absolutely. time of God's the patience. The mission. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, interesting. Uh, while I'm thinking of it. Uh, even in Luke, when when Luke quotes, uh, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke, he stops the passage right before the breaking of the eggs. So they, there's a phase one Jesus, even in in the way Jesus quotes uh, Isaiah 61 in, in Luke 4. But this passage, men of violence take it by force. I mean, it's a, crypt, a little bit cryptic and, uh, d- you know, debate over what it means. I mean, I I suspect to me it it refers to the revolutionary elements, the messianic movements, the Thutis, the you know, um, Judas the Galilean, some Egyptian. We don't know the, even what the name was, but I mean there were movements in the first century uh, that tried to overthrow throw the Romans. In a sense, they were trying to bring the kingdom of heaven by force, and that's just not that's not Jesus' plan for phase one, and so you know, you might predict I'm going to go here. There are elements of American Christianity right now that are looking for the violent Jesus. I won't name names. You could probably dig them up. I remember there's one one writer, I mean, an author of, of a book I bought several years ago, you know, who punched a guy, punched a guy on a bike, and, and he represents Jesus, allegedly. Uh, maybe he does. Maybe Maybe I'm wrong, you know, but I know someone with really harsh rhetoric right now who if I remember correctly, you know, don't trust social media, you know, said something like Jesus is Lord uh, when they pulled ahead in the election. And, you know, my New Testament Jesus sensibilities say, I think you should read a little bit more about him. So 
there are there are elements in the church today that are totally convinced uh, that they are on the Jesus train and are trying to take the kingdom by force. It feels to me, and that's not that's not what Jesus says here. He says, "Well, if you want to know whether I'm the Messiah or not, I am healing the, the lame. I am giving blind their sight. Uh, I'm helping the deaf to hear. I'm raising the dead, and I'm preaching good news to the poor." And blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over these things, right? <laughs> so again, may the Lord uh, correct me if I'm wrong on on anything. But it seems to me that the church today, uh, American church, has had an awful lot of trying to take the kingdom by force, and I just don't think that's what Jesus uh, is wanting us to do in in this phase. Phase two will come soon enough. Even so, Maranatha, come quickly. But um, we're not there yet. I don't think. Do you, what are your thoughts? No, I think that's spot on. It's. I think it invites this passage. Invites that. I mean, looking around and saying, "What are you? What? It, what is it?" You're, I love the phrase. What did you go out in the desert to see? You know, and I could see that question being one that could even frame the sermon. What are you looking for? Right. What are you looking for? What kind of earthly saviors are you uh, longing for? And how is Jesus upsetting? that expectation and directing your attention elsewhere, right? To the blind, the lame, the lepers, and the poor, right? That that's where your attention should be on. And our our natural inclination, I think it's natural as human beings, is to draw our eyes up towards the powerful and expect the powerful to save us or expect the powerful that are on our side to save us from the ones who aren't <laughs> on our side in our minds. And maybe rightly so. Maybe the the evaluation. It's not like Jesus was saying Romans are great, man. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, no, I mean, it's not. So there can be uh Jesus and John the Baptist both were uh, pretty harsh critics of the powers that be, but then recognizing what is it that we are called to celebrate support and do in the time between his first and his final coming. And it's the season of service. It's a time of healing of restoration. That's what we're called for. Right. Uh, that's what we're called to do and called to live out. So a, some kind of sermon that really explores, you know, what is it that we're looking for, you know, and explore how have we been disappointed by previous earthly saviors? Do we expect to not be disappointed this time around? And so to recognize that, that rush to grab hold and to seize, to seize the, the reins of power, you know, I love it. You know, what did you go out in the desert to see? Are you going out there to see a king and a guy in fancy clothes? You know, of course, John famously dressed kind of funny. You know, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a, a, a power like Herod's or a power like Pilate's? You know, no, deep down inside, you know what you're looking for. You're looking for a prophet. You're looking for one who is going to prepare you for the coming of the Lord. And you can hear, I mean, you can hear, I, I think I can hear opponents to the Jesus movement and, you know, you know, what kind of a, when, Jesus was a loser. I mean, he, he let the Romans crucify him. You know, Paul, Paul says it, that's uh, to the Greeks, that's stupidity, you know, and to the Jews that's step out let's, let's, let's fight. Let's go. I'm going to beat you up for saying our Messiah, you know, got, got crucified. Um, yeah. It's and, a scandal. Same word, right? Yeah. Scandal on. Yeah. So even in the first century, I mean, we're in, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes Christians are in our position to have power. And it's easy to remember that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay, um, not you. 
mean, it's easy to remember that when you're not in power, but when you have a chance at power, it's hard. It's hard not to take it. I think for for a lot of us, but yeah. And so, what does it mean to use the power that we do have to help the blind, the lame, the lepers, the dead, and the poor? Right. That's that's who the power's for. Right. Not just to protect myself um, and my own, but the least of these. Yeah. Well, what are some ideas uh, for preaching that come to you? Well, I mean, this is a convicting sermon that we're pitching. So I just want to pause and say, this is the, I think this is the, the right direction to go. And the question is just how, what kind of form that you'd put it in. So whether there's stories or points or whatnot. Um, I've given I think, the Thor, the Thor illustration. You know, yeah, that. it's right. They're ready to go. So that one was, <laughs> so the whole, there is another approach and I don't think it would dismiss this. I think this is where it would end up. That is kind of a hard place to start. So I feel like that's kind of the back half of the sermon that I would probably preach. The front half would start with the questioning, right? Even those who know, you know, to even be able to say to people, you know, even you who are living in the hope of the Messiah, sometimes you still maybe wonder, wait, is this, am I, did I, did I back the wrong horse? You know, uh, I think those questions are, are often hidden in hearts or sometimes openly raised. And so to give a little space for those, I think would be a, actually a really good place to start. You could have a part one, the underconfident, and part two, the overconfident. Right. And then warn that this is, and actually often though, often we are drawn to violence and oppressing others for the sake of ourselves and our communities. We often do that because we feel like our back's against the wall and we don't have a lot to be confident in. You know, sometimes the overconfidence is fueled by underconfidence, right? What is narcissism, but the, you know, the kind of overconfidence fueled by a deep insecurity. So I think that would be, I think that would be the way in is to start with the, cause I, I feel like if I was listening to a sermon that started with, Hey, you want to seize power, you know, and if I had some, I, I would put my guard up. I'd be like, yeah, but these are righteous, righteous. Sure righteous indignation at evil in the world. And I'd be like, yeah, that you're right. <laughs> it is. Uh, so to, to acknowledge, to start with, to lead with weakness and lead with heart and say, have you been where John is, is, have you been someone who's followed Jesus, celebrated him, directed others to him, but also still have moments where you're like, man, did I back the wrong horse? Again, we're after phase one, uh, but we're still waiting for phase two. And man, we've been waiting a long time. So all the same problems are raising up. So then it's asking, what are the signs? What am I looking for? There's that question again. What am I looking for? Who did I go out in the wilderness to see? And reminding us a little bit of what, what it is that drew us to Jesus in the first place. Because what drew us to Jesus in the first place was likely not what he's accomplishing at the levels of power. What drew us is that we ourselves were lame and he helped us walk, right? Yeah. So a little bit of looking back and remembering you know, what got us, what drew us to him in the first place. And then to say, actually, that's the whole trend of his work. Um, and how can I cooperate with that um, and celebrate that and beg the Holy Spirit for greater patience and endurance when that doesn't seem to be changing the world fast enough, you know? So hard. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, but good. It's all, I think it's encouraging though. I think it is encouraging. It's a release. I knew it. I think I told I would find a way to weave that in. I think it's perfect. That's just, that is just spot on, you know? Yeah. Have you ever watched on YouTube, the reaction videos where it's not yeah. just that it's yeah. people in the audience getting yeah. all jazzed on opening night. Oh my gosh. Sometimes I just watch that just to feel good. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Well, thanks so much, Ken. I always have a blast interpreting scripture with you. This was so great to have you back on. I, 
So fun. Hope to hit you up a lot this year. We'll be doing lots of New Testament. And so I'm really jazzed to, to dig in with you. So Great to be with you. Yeah. Thanks to Todd and Eric for your production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Thanks to all our supporters of the show, uh, especially uh, our, our Patreon supporters, our patron saints, as we call them. If you'd like to become one, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. Find ways that you can support the show and my team behind the scenes and all the work that they do. With that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>